This is American History TV's Lectures in History podcast. This week, Connecticut State University professor Thomas Belsersky teaches a class on the relationship between two prominent 19th century U.S. politicians. James Buchanan, elected president in 1856, and William Rufus King, who served briefly as vice president in 1853. Okay, let's get started. Thank you, everyone, for being here today, and a special hello and welcome to everyone watching on C-SPAN. So far this semester, we have been discussing the process by which you, as students of history, research and write papers. As you know, our class is focused heavily on historical methodology, and your task this semester has been to analyze a primary source and write a paper that explores its significance in a historical context. We have considered how to write a research proposal, prepare a bibliography, construct an outline, and draft the paper itself. And we have discussed the critical value of revision and rewriting. These are the crucial steps that every historian must take to conduct original research and share it with the wider world. Today, I want to pull back the curtain, so to speak, into the research process in a different way by sharing with you my own journey with research and writing. My goal today is to take you back to the world of 19th century American politics, a world very different from our own in some ways and quite similar in other ways. And to offer you a glimpse into what I call the intimate world of James Buchanan and William Rufus King, the title of my lecture today. Along the way, I will show you how the same tools of historical research and writing that we have been learning this semester can be applied to a larger project, such as a book. By the end of today's class, I hope that you will have a new appreciation for the work that historians do every day and to reinforce why we always stress that you should study what you love, since you may be living with your research subject for a very long time. To start, let's look at my title slide and consider a valuable visual clue into the research process I'm about to unfold. On the screen, you can see the images of James Buchanan, on the left, our nation's 15th president, and on the right, William Rufus King, our nation's 14th vice president. The original Buchanan portrait was painted in 1834 when Buchanan was 43 years old, the same year that he came to the Capitol as a United States Senator. The King portrait dated to 1840 when he was 54 years old depicts a much younger man, but nevertheless, one who is proud and bearing and confident in his place in the world. I chose these two images for my book because they cover, because they offer striking examples of the two men in their prime. They reveal how they each wanted to be seen to future generations. These two images also offer us a lesson into the random nature of research itself. The portrait of Buchanan is held by the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C., and I obtained it by making a request to the curator, who then staged the portrait in a photographer's studio and took a very high-resolution picture. The King portrait is from the private collections of the Dye Phi Society, a college literary society at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Thanks to the assistance of the society's longtime advisor, Dr. Bland Simpson, I was able to see the portrait firsthand and eventually obtain a high-quality reproduction. The lesson for historians? We all rely on the kindness of others, of librarians, staff at historical societies, archivists, and fellow researchers to bring our research to life. As I encourage all of you to do who are writing a biography this semester, I'd like to start at the beginning and provide a brief overview of Buchanan and King individually, and in the process, place a spotlight on some scenes from their early years. 
born in 1791 in an actual log cabin outside of Mercersburg, pictured on the left, James Buchanan was a lifelong Pennsylvanian. He attended Dickinson College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and graduated as his valedictorian in 1809. As a young lawyer, he settled in Lancaster, then the state capital, where he made his home for the remainder of his life. And on the right, we see a view of East King Street in downtown Lancaster, on which street he lived for more than 20 years. First elected to the U.S. House of Representatives as a Federalist in 1820, Buchanan was pro-bank, pro-tariff, and anti-war. By the 1830s, however, he had been pulled into the political orbit of Andrew Jackson and the Democratic Party. Elected to the U.S. Senate in 1834, he served for 10 years before being tapped by President James K. Polk as Secretary of State. In that capacity, he steered the nation's diplomacy through the Oregon Boundary Dispute and the Mexican-American War. He tried to run for president several times, but who hasn't, most notably in 1848, 1852, and 1856, when he finally obtained the Democratic Party nomination. Elected president in November 1856, his term in office began with high hopes and ended with the dissolution of the Union. He retired to Wheatland, his country estate outside of Lancaster, where he spent the, his remaining days insisting that history would vindicate him for his actions. He would wait a very long time. By comparison, William Rufus Devon King, or just the shorter William Rufus King, was born in 1786. He was a transplant from North Carolina, an early map of which you see on the left, who helped to found the city of Selma, Alabama. A sketch of his plantation called Chestnut Hill is pictured on the right. He attended college at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, though he did not graduate. He was first elected to the U.S. House of Representatives in 1810 as a Jeffersonian Democrat, a group that we today call the Democratic Republicans. As compared to Buchanan, he held a lifelong disdain for the National Bank, opposed tariffs, and supported the War of 1812. Next elected to the U.S. Senate from Alabama in 1819, King believed in states' rights at the expense of federal authority, greater access to the public lands at the expense of the Native American peoples who occupied them, and making a profit planting cotton at the expense of enslaved African Americans. His commitment to the racial hierarchy of the slaveholding South was whole cloth. At the same time, King supported the continuation of the Union and resisted talk of secession by radical Southerners, marking him as a political moderate for the Deep South. For his lifelong loyalty to the party and to balance the ticket, he was selected as the vice presidential running mate under Franklin Pierce in 1852. Elected to that office in November, he died from tuberculosis in April 1853, having barely served one month of his term. Both Buchanan and King shared one other essential quality in common besides their political identification with the Democratic Party. Both men were lifelong bachelors, never marrying during their respective lifetimes. However, each man could speak of a long-ago romance that carried lasting value during their political careers. Let's start with Buchanan's story. In 1819, Buchanan was considered to be Lancaster's most eligible bachelor. That same year, he became engaged to Anne Coleman, the 23-year-old daughter of a wealthy iron magnate pictured on the left. But when the strain of work caused Buchanan to neglect his fiancée, Coleman broke off the engagement. She died shortly thereafter of what her physician described as hysterical convulsions. Rumors that she had committed suicide all the same have persisted. Both the author John Updike and Buchanan's biographer Philip Klein privately thought as much. For Buchanan's part, he later claimed that he entered politics as a, quote, distraction from my great grief. The love story of William Rufus King presents a more far-fetched tale. 
Unlike Buchanan, King was never known to pursue a woman seriously. But, critically, he could also tell a story of a long-ago love. In 1817, while serving as secretary to the American mission to Russia, he supposedly fell in love with Princess Charlotte of Prussia, pictured on the left, who was just then, conveniently, to marry Tsar Nicholas Alexander, heir to the Russian imperial throne. As the King family tradition has it, he passionately kissed the hand of the Tsarina, a risky move that could have landed him in serious jeopardy. The faux pas quickly passed, though, as a kind note the next day revealed that all was forgiven. Still, he spent the remainder of his days bemoaning a wayward heart that he could never love again. So where does this leave us in the year 2020? Well, to some modern observers, the answer is simple. These two bachelors were more than just friends. They were lovers. As these images reveal, you'll need to search Google for James Buchanan to discover the inevitable. American history has declared him to be the first gay president. From there, it doesn't take long to discover that his, this popular understanding derives from his relationship with one man in particular. That's right, William Rufus King. And let me here give a special shout out to Project POTUS Page's account on Instagram for the incredibly evocative art of Buchanan and King that you see on the screen. Here too is another lesson for the historical researcher today. Engagements with social media can be both enlightening to understand popular opinion and rewarding as a way to validate the importance of your research subject. The sketches on this and subsequent slides wonderfully illustrate the points that I made in my research. I recommend that everyone follow this account that has as its mission to illustrate the life of all presidents of the United States. On that point, let me stress here about the connection between researcher and subject. The truth is that we all study the things that interest us, about which we are passionate. My interest in the story of James Buchanan and William Rufus King is no different in this regard. As a gay man living in the 21st century, I admit to having been quite intrigued when I first heard this characterization of them as lovers. As I say, we often study what we do because we want to relate to our research subjects in some way. But I also knew that I needed to be more critical in how I approach this topic and to ask questions that might yield a fuller picture. So I began to ask then, as I ask you now, what was the real nature of their relationship? Was each man gay, as Newsweek would have us believe, or something else? And why do Americans seem fixated on making Buchanan our first gay president? All right, spoiler alert ahead. As I have stressed this semester, historians must follow their research wherever it takes them. My research has led me to archives in 21 states, the District of Columbia, and even the British Library in London. My findings suggest that James Buchanan and William Rufus King had an intimate male friendship of the kind common in the 19th century. A generation of scholarship has uncovered numerous such intimate, though mostly platonic, friendships among men. At the same time, some of these friendships could include an erotic element as well. The friendship of Buchanan and King included both platonic and erotic elements, but not in the way you think. The evidence suggests that King yearned longer and deeper for Buchanan, who never reciprocated in return. In fact, Buchanan shrewdly cultivated King's affection when it was convenient and ignored him when it was not. In the unequal terms of their relationship, King kept giving and Buchanan kept taking, not in a sexual way, but in an emotional and especially a political way. In the realm of politics, more than anything else, their friendship made its greatest impact. In the years before the Civil War, 
friendships among politicians such as Buchanan and King provided a crucial way to bridge the growing chasm between the North and the South. Simply put, friendships provided the political glue that bound together a nation on the precipice of disunion. To really understand how the intimate world of James Buchanan and William Rufus King operated, let's look back, back on the moment in which they first met. The year was 1834, and Buchanan and King were both serving in the United States Senate. Each of these two middle-aged bachelor Democrats brought something that the other man lacked. King exuded social polish and congeniality. He was noted for being brave and chivalrous by contemporaries. His mannerisms could be bizarre at times, and some thought him effeminate. Buchanan, by contrast, was liked by almost everyone. He was witty and enjoyed drinking, especially glasses of fine Madeira wine with his fellow congressmen. Whereas King could be reserved, Buchanan was boisterous and outgoing. Together, they made for something of an odd couple out and about in the Capitol. As this image demonstrates, living conditions in Washington during the early 1800s were quite primitive by later standards. The city had slowly recovered from the devastation wrought by the War of 1812. The area between the Capitol and the White House, today the National Mall, was still swampland. Drinking water was unclean and epidemic disease ran rampant. Roads were made of dirt and became muddy when rain or dusty with heat. Then as now, Washington could be terribly hot during the summers. Congress met for two or perhaps three sessions over a two-year period, such that the average congressman spent fewer than 12 out of 24 months in the Capitol. The cyclical nature of Congress led to the establishment of boarding houses, or messes, which were temporary establishments where congressmen lived and ate together. The high season for social life came in the winter months, when the president and his cabinet hosted levees, parties, and balls. The close quarters and need for civility gave rise to a Washington Brotherhood, though sectional and partisan differences limited its full unity during these years. While in Washington, Buchanan and King established their own mess. The dwelling consisted of several bedrooms upstairs with parlors on the ground floor. Meals were served by the boarding housekeeper. Both enslaved and free African-Americans labored in domestic capacity. Southern congressmen such as King usually brought their own enslaved people with them to Washington. From these relatively humble quarters, important politics followed. The bachelor's mess was one such grouping in Washington during the Jacksonian period. At any given time, four congressmen lived in the bachelor's mess, most of whom were unmarried. Pictured on the far left is Bedford Brown of North Carolina, who was the sole married man. Next to him is Robert Carter Nicholas of Virginia, who was a bachelor. John Pendleton King of Georgia, another bachelor, is next. And finally on the far right is William Henry Roan of Virginia, a widower. Pictured in the background is F Street, where you can see the federal-style townhouses, townhouses that served as boarding houses during this period. Interestingly, most of the bachelors of the mess let, eventually left Congress, and after a short time, each man married. By contrast, Buchanan and King stayed in the Senate, and each man never married. Political ambition played a part in their decision, but equally, the friendship formed in the intimacy of the mess brought the pair together on a personal level. As Buchanan later wrote of these years, he lived with King as a brother. During the 1840s, after the Whig Party had taken control of the White House and Congress, Buchanan and King looked to the future. Each man yearned for higher office. By that time, the Democrats had fallen into a rhythm of nominating a national ticket of one Northerner and one Southerner for president and vice president as a way to balance competing sectional interests of the party. 
With Martin Van Buren of New York presumed to be the Democratic nominee once more in 1844, King wanted to be selected as vice president, but so did many other Democrats. In January 1844, the personal friendship of Buchanan and King, born in the privacy of a Washington mess, suddenly became the subject of much political scrutiny. An anonymous debate erupted over the vice presidential question in the pages of the Washington Daily Globe. The war of words stirred their political rivals into action. Aaron Brown, pictured on the left, the former governor of Tennessee, was especially enraged by them. In a confidential letter written to future First Lady Sarah Polk, pictured to the right, Brown savaged Buchanan and King, writing, quote, Mr. Buchanan looks gloomy and dissatisfied, and so did his better half until a little private flattery and a certain newspaper puff, which you doubtless noticed. Excited hopes that by getting a divorce, she might set up again in the world to some tolerable advantage. Brown's reference to James Buchanan's better half, of course, pointed to William Rufus King. Aaron Brown and Sarah Polk were not alone in gossiping about Buchanan and King. Other political enemies variously called them Aunt Nancy, Miss Nancy, or Aunt Fancy, which implied effeminacy and possibly sexual deviancy. Of course, their rivals disparaged their characters in an effort to weaken their public standing. In this, though, they largely failed. But ironically, the rivals of Buchanan and King have succeeded much better in our own times, as this gossipy evidence, almost more than anything else, has been cited as proof positive of a sexual relationship between them. Other less salacious gossip flowed, too. Years later, Julia Gardner Tyler, the much younger second wife and first lady of President John Tyler, remembered them as, quote, the Siamese twins, after the famous conjoined twins Chang and Ang Bunker. By comparison to the litany of insults deriving from Aunt Nancy, the phrase Siamese twins was more varied in meaning. It has today become a politically incorrect phrase for conjoined twins, whereas for many years it was used metaphorically to, to describe close political partnerships. In these two images, we see how political cartoonists depicted pairs of Siamese twins during the 19th century. The one from the Jacksonian period on the left depicts the newspaper editors conjoined by a ligature on which reads, quote, the party tie, whereas a later image from the 1890s lampoons the statesmanship that bound the Democratic and Populist parties together. Here again, I want to underscore for students conducting historical research the importance of studying the language of the period. Tracing the meaning of certain words and phrases across time is an especially useful exercise. It allows us to be more precise and to gain a better understanding of our research research subjects. Generally speaking, the insults levied against Buchanan and King were done in the private correspondence of their opponents, such as the confidential letter already quoted from Aaron Brown to Sarah Polk. When the language did appear in print, it often did so in the columns of the opposition party's newspapers. It's therefore important to distinguish between private gossip and public gossip. Both were meant to insult, but the context matters in trying to decipher the coded gender and sexual meaning of these words. Speaking of decoding language, intimacy is another such word requiring explanation. Today, the word primarily connotes a physical closeness, but back then it conveyed a shared trust on a personal level. Politicians like Buchanan and King understood their associations with other public men to include two distinct, if overlapping, categories. The first of these, personal or effective friendships involved a significant level of intimacy, while the second, political or public friendships, functioned more instrumentally to advance common interests. 
Hence, to call, call theirs an intimate male friendship follows the language of the period. Likewise, the phrase bosom friends is one that we should consider. Defined as a communication of secrets, it typically described the friendship of a man with another man or with a woman, woman with another woman, but never across genders. Many politicians were called bosom friends, including Andrew Jackson with his Secretary of War, John Eaton, husband to the infamous Peggy Eaton. Of all the descriptions circulating during the period, bosom friends was used the least pejoratively and carried positive connotations about same-sex intimacy, whether that be between two men or two women. Beyond the gossip, I was fortunate to discover more than 60 personal letters that still survive, including several that contain expressions of intimate male friendship. Unfortunately, we can only read one side of this correspondence, the letters written from King to Buchanan. However, many of Buchanan's letters to other correspondents do survive, including those to Cornelia Van Ness Roosevelt, pictured on the right. The daughter of Cornelius Van Ness, the former governor of Vermont and the American minister to Spain, she enchanted Buchanan from the moment of their meeting in the late 1820s. As Buchanan admitted to her many years later, quote, you captivated me at once and I have ever since remained faithful and true. And am now, in my old age, your devoted friend. Years later, Secretary of State William Marcy confirmed that Buchanan still, quote, takes a wonderful interest in the family and once courted one of the daughters himself. Although Cornelia had apparently declined these advances, they still felt deep affection for one another. She married James Roosevelt of New York City, who later served a single term in the House of Representatives from 1841 to 1843. During that time, the couple hosted numerous social gatherings and in the process, the intimate circle of Buchanan and the Roosevelts expanded to include William Rufus King. One year later, the new connection led King to stay with the Roosevelts in New York City as he prepared to travel overseas as the new American minister, minister to France. From this triangulated relationship follows some of the most intimate correspondence ever written by the two bosom friends. In a letter dated May 13, 1844, Buchanan wrote of his desire to be with the Roosevelts and with King. The full quote, which I will read, is very revealing. I envy Colonel King the pleasure of meeting you and give anything in reason to be of the party for a single week. I am now solitary and alone, having no companion in the house with me. I have gone a wooing to several gentlemen, but have not succeeded with any one of them. I feel that it is not good for man to be alone and should not be astonished to find myself married to some old maid who can nurse me when I am sick, provide good dinners for me when I am well, and not expect from me any very ardent or romantic affections. Understandably, though inaccurately in my view, many have interpreted these sentimental expressions as clear evidence of a sexual relationship between the two men. As it turns out, though, many of these same expressions were common in the language of intimate male friendship during this period. Equally important in this case is the person to whom Buchanan wrote, Cornelia Roosevelt. Only rarely did he write with such emotional expression, and when he did, he always did so to women. All the same, the quotation contains phrases that commonly appeared in Buchanan's correspondence with other public men. Many of the most Peculiar lines were actually allusions to the Bible and novels. Rather than expressing sexual intimacy for King, Buchanan meant them as a kind of emotional confession to Roosevelt. In the context of the Washington boarding house, they conveyed political meaning as well. 
Let's start with wooing. The letter illustrated the practical difficulty of finding new messmates with whom to unite. Whether or not he cared to admit it, Buchanan had thrown in his political lot with his bachelor messmates, of whom King had been the last survivor. Most likely, the unnamed several gentlemen whom Buchanan wooed, meaning that he asked to join him in his solitary boarding house on F Street, had already made other living arrangements and did not wish to change them. These unnamed men may have also been uninterested in joining the mess of an old bachelor and a man with an uncertain political future. Thus rejected, Buchanan sought epistolary refuge in his bachelorhood, a recurring theme throughout his letters to female friends. He did so through a combination of literary allusion and histrionic rhetoric. He directly quoted the book of Genesis from the Bible when he said it is not good for man to be alone. His lament for some old maid who can nurse me was more theatrical performance than reality, for he had already hired Esther Parker, nicknamed Miss Hetty, to keep house back in Lancaster. Yet even at age 53, a marriage to an old maid, a term to describe an unmarried woman beyond the socially accepted age of marriage, was not out of the question for an uncertain bachelor. Such a pairing would have relieved him of the ardent or romantic affection expected by a younger, more amorous female partner. This outcome must have appeared attractive to Buchanan, and in fact, he would pursue exactly this sort of union in the years ahead, first as Secretary of State and then as President. Now, so far I've stressed the importance of the documentary record, but the visual record of political cartoons was also critical to my research. The cartoon on the screen, for example, helped me to resolve one of the most vexing challenges in interpreting Buchanan's letter to King, the phrase, solitary and alone. Just like wooing, the phrase solitary and alone has been thought to contain sexual undertones. But throughout his correspondence, Buchanan used the phrase almost always within quotation marks in a very particular way. He was alluding to a famous speech delivered by Thomas Hart Benton, a senator from Missouri, in January 1837. Benton, I might note, was himself alluding to a line from the 18th century novel Tristram Shandy, written by Lawrence Stern. Now, in his speech, Benton favored an expunging resolution, ironically first proposed by William Rufus King, to remove a congressional censure against President Andrew Jackson, which had been issued for his veto of the Second Bank of the United States. Benton knew that his position was unpopular with his fellow congressmen. Solitary and alone, and amidst the jeers and taunts of my opponents, Benton concluded in the speech, I put this ball into motion. His speech, and particularly the phrase solitary and alone, caused a sensation in the popular press. From there, a Whig cartoonist mocked the Missouri senator as a tumblebug, dragging along the expunging resolution with the names of the bachelor messmates James Buchanan, Bedford Brown, Robert Nicholas, and William Rufus King listed in the oversized carapace of the bug. The text bubble above quotes Benton's, Benton's speech, including the famous phrase, solitary and alone. Following the speech, other politicians adopted the phrase in their correspondence, including both Buchanan and King. Not surprisingly, they had both voiced strong support for the expunging resolution of Jackson's censure. Buchanan's use of the phrase in his letter to King, then, was meant to elicit sympathy from Cornelia Roosevelt. Back to their letters. I began to see how a pattern was developing and established between them, and how they had utilized a shared vocabulary of intimacy with one another. Like other intimate male friendships, 
This common language appeared at various points in their correspondence, most clearly, though, during periods of separation. And after receiving his letter from Buchanan, Cornelia Van Ness Roosevelt passed it along to King, who wrote back immediately to his former messmate in Washington. Again, the full quote is worth reading and analyzing. I am selfish enough to hope you will not be able to procure an associate who will cause you to feel no regret at our separation. For myself, I shall feel lonely in the midst of Paris, for there I shall have no friends with whom I can commune as with my own thoughts. As was typical in his correspondence with Buchanan, King responded with sentimentality. Understandably, he did not wish to feel replaceable by another congressman after spending the better portion of 10 years living with James Buchanan. His impending isolation in France would further prevent communion, a word that he used here and in other letters to mean sharing his thoughts, with his friends, a word he capitalized in reference to political friends or allies. Although King brought relatives and younger staffers with him overseas, the transatlantic separation cut him off from his network of political friends at home. This and many other letters that followed suggest that King wanted to believe that his friendship with Buchanan had been something more than a mere political expedient, that Buchanan had felt as deeply about King as he did in turn, but had it. As King headed overseas, Buchanan was about to embark on his own journey toward higher office and away from his old bosom friend. In 1844, America elected James K. Polk as president. In turn, Polk selected Buchanan to be his secretary of state. He did so for several reasons. For one, he needed to reward Pennsylvania with a cabinet post, and Buchanan was the most available man. For another, Buchanan possessed real foreign policy experience, having served as American minister to Russia and as chairman of the Senate's uh, Foreign Relations Committee. But Polk's own vice president, George Dallas of Pennsylvania, vehemently disagreed with the choice and threatened to resign from office rather than see his local rival become secretary of state. In time, Polk himself came to deeply regret the choice. Buchanan's reputation as a diplomat is well-deserved, and he is correctly cited as being among the most prepared men ever to become president. That being said, he played second fiddle to the iron-willed Polk. Polk kept Buchanan in the role precisely because he did what he, what he was told, eventually. As such, Polk abided some of Buchanan's more eccentric personal qualities, though the president detested his Secretary of State's unceasing efforts to become the next president. Accordingly, Buchanan is missing from the first cabinet photo ever taken inside the White House at the bottom left. Despite the gossip from a year earlier, Buchanan became a favorite of the Polk White House and especially First Lady Sarah Polk. Still a bachelor, Buchanan had by this time become the guardian to his orphan niece, Harriet Lane. In one of the earliest photos from outside the White House, we see Buchanan standing next to his niece on the upper left, along with other members of the cabinet and the social circle of the Polk White House. Now, very prominently to the right is Dolly Madison, who is pictured as well in the second photo to the right. Buchanan greatly respected Dolly Madison and her unmarried niece, Anna Payne, standing next to Dolly in the photo. Anna Payne was something of a romantic interest. At one point, Buchanan asked Dolly Madison and Anna Payne to help him to host a social event at his boarding house. The flirtation with Anna Payne did not lead to marriage, however. And still, Buchanan penned a heartfelt poem about Anna Payne and kept a silhouette cut out of her in a scrapbook. Buchanan later served as the executor of Dolly Madison's estate and kept a fond interest in paying for the rest of her life. 
And what about Buchanan's friendship with King during this period? Well, during this time as Secretary of State, Buchanan largely ignored King. The slight did not go noticed, unnoticed. In 1848, President Polk reminded the nation of his pledge to serve a single term. Both parties, Democrats and Whigs, sensed an opportunity to score a major electoral victory. In the aftermath of the Mexican-American War, Buchanan and King schemed to form a bachelor ticket. They nearly succeeded, too, but instead others were chosen. In the wake of the Democratic National Convention, a political cartoonist lampooned the losing presidential contenders as spinsters, with Buchanan prominently pictured wearing a dress. Buchanan retreated to Lancaster, where he purchased Wheatland, his country estate outside of the city, pictured at upper right. From the dignity of retirement, he kept active politically. King wanted nothing more than to return to the Senate, which he did in 1848. Thus, he was on hand for the critical debates of 1850, which has come down to history as the Compromise of 1850. Buchanan and King corresponded regularly during this period, but without any hint of the earlier intimacy of their bosom friendship. Their letters were almost entirely political. As president pro tempore of the Senate, King counseled moderation to his colleagues during the compromise debates. He was staunchly pro-union and received much criticism from his radical states' rights constituents back home in Alabama. Arguably, his many years in the Senate and especially his association with Buchanan had given him an unyielding commitment to holding together the National Union. In a portrait commemorating the Compromise of 1850 on the left, King is depicted standing next to Buchanan in the second row at right. Now, in truth, Buchanan did not deserve to be included in the tableau, for he had done very little to help steer the nation away from the precipice of disunion in 1850. However, so well known was Buchanan's connection to William Rufus King that the artist determined to include him anyway, fittingly directly in front of his old messmate. Again, this piece of visual evidence provides a critical uh, way to read the friendship of these two men and especially their public friendship in the years after 1850. As the 1840s turned to the 1850s, I began to see how each man placed his own individual fortune before their collective political fortunes. In fact, in their final years, a political competition developed between them. Instead of bosom friends, they were now practically frenemies. In 1852, the Democratic Party once more gathered to pick a presidential and vice presidential ticket. And once more, Buchanan was passed over in favor of a man with less experience, in this case, Franklin Pierce of New Hampshire. But during the convention, King at last obtained his lifelong dream of being selected as vice president. Quote, you know he is Buchanan's bosom friend, wrote one Pierce supporter following King's selection, and thus a great and powerful interest is conciliated. Even their rivals could not ignore their combined strength. On April 18, 1853, though, having not served even one month in office, William Rufus King died at the age of 67, a victim of tuberculosis. In truth, he had been, he had been sick for years. As the nation mourned the fallen vice president, Buchanan neither eulogized King nor issued any kind of public statement from Wheatland. In private, he was more charitable. He wrote a friend that he would, quote, rather have taken King's advice upon any subject, personal or political, than that of any other man. But in their last years together, Buchanan had largely ignored King's advice rather than take it. With William Rufus King gone, what happened to James Buchanan? In 1853, President Pierce sent Buchanan overseas as the American minister to England, 
When he returned three years later, in April 1856, the political climate had changed drastically. The unpopular Kansas-Nebraska Act made Pierce untenable for another term. Instead, the Democrats now clamored for Old Buck. In this cartoon, titled A Serviceable Garment, or Reverie of a Bachelor, the artist depicts Buchanan as a poor bachelor whose long history of public service seems more a liability than an asset. Yet in 1856, the reverse proved the case. Chosen as the party's candidate at its national convention, James Buchanan handily won the presidential election over two challengers, John C. Fremont, a Republican, and former President Miller Fillmore representing the nativist American party. Now running for president, Buchanan shrewdly invoked the memory of William Rufus King. A visitor to Wheatland noted that Buchanan kept a likeness of the late Vice President King, whom he loved and who did not. To the same visitor, Buchanan recalled that his former messmate was, quote, the purest public man that he ever knew, and that during his intimate acquaintance of 30 years, he had never known him to perform a selfish act. The language of intimacy then helped to underscore the purity of their friendship. Even from the grave, William Rufus King aided his old friend as a, rhetor a rhetorical talking point. As President James Buchanan visited the University of North Carolina, King's alma mater, where he invoked the memory of his former friend. But by then, with the rumble of disunion growing louder, his bosom friendship with King must have seemed a distant memory of a bygone age. With each passing year, it obtained a more sentimental gloss. The inauguration of James Buchanan must have been among the, most ha among the happiest days of his administration. In retrospect, it was more or less all downhill from there. Historians have commonly identified four major failures of the Buchanan administration. First, the Supreme Court case of Dred Scott versus Sanford, 1857, which Buchanan not only supported but had secretly influenced. Second, Buchanan's role in the fratricidal feud with Stephen Douglas over the Lecompton Constitution, which Buchanan supported and Douglas rejected, that divided the Democratic Party and arguably led to its breakup in 1860. Third, Buchanan's handling of the Utah War of 1858, in which the president sent the army west to quell unrest in a territory settled by a few thousand Mormons. Finally, and most importantly, Buchanan's handling of the secession crisis of 1860 to 1861. Of all the many failures, history has judged him more harshly for the secession crisis than any other factor, a point to which I will return. What I found interesting in my research into the Buchanan presidency was the many continuations of, from his intimate connection with men like William Rufus King to others. Under the careful management of First Lady Harriet Lane, Buchanan's niece, pictured on the left, Washington was, quote, never gayer than during this administration. The entertainments included morning receptions, evening receptions, dinners, musicales, children's parties, old-fashioned evening parties with music and supper, and splendid balls. So many functions vied for attention that, Wash that a Washington socialites often, quote, attended three balls in one evening. Bu Buchanan also continued to enjoy romantic flirtations, now exclusively with Southern widows. Even before returning to the United States, a rumor had circulated that he intended to court the widow, Sarah Polk, though both parties categorically denied it. In the summer of 1859, however, he became attached to Eugenie Bate Bass of Mississippi, a wealthy 33-year-old widow and mother of three, pictured on the right. When Bass visited Buchanan at the soldier's cottage, the president reportedly rushed out of the parlor to change his clothes, returning dressed in an, within an inch of his life, as Kate Thompson, wife of the Secretary of the Interior, recalled it. 
In August 1859, the president squired Bass and her three children with him to Bedford Springs, a resort town in western Pennsylvania. But these flirtations aside, Buchanan remained incorrigibly a bachelor during his presidency. With King gone, Buchanan continued his close connection, especially to King's niece, Catherine Ellis. In 1860, he hosted Prince Albert Edward, son of Queen Victoria, and heir to the British throne during his American visit. In a touching moment of transatlantic friendship, Buchanan traveled with the young prince to Mount Vernon to pay their respects at the tomb of, of George Washington. In this portrait from the Smithsonian American Art Museum, we see Harriet Lane holding a parasol and Catherine Ellis wearing a black shawl with her back to the viewer, both of whom stand to the left of President Buchanan and Prince Albert Edward. Here again, a hidden piece of visual evidence proved critical to finding the continued connections of Buchanan with the family of William Rufus King. Thinking back on Buchanan's failures as president, I began to wonder how his relationship with King and other Southerners may have played a part. President Buchanan meddled where he should not have and acted stubbornly where flexibility was needed. His involvement in the Dred Scott case, discovered years later, was an unwarranted intrusion of the executive branch into the affairs of the judicial branch. His insistence that the Kansas Territory be admitted to the Union with a pro-slavery and almost certainly fraudulent constitution caused an irreparable rift with Stephen Douglas and an important ring of the Democratic Party. His decision to march the army to Utah showed a hard head and an unwise and costly flexing of federal authority uh, over perceived insubordination. As president, Buchanan could not seem to reconcile his strict interpretation of the Constitution with a need to respond to the times. He was stuck in the politics of the past, in a time when bosom friendship with Southern Democrats had been enough to elevate him to higher office. Arguably, he was still relying on the same old political formula that brought him national prominence back during his days in the United States Senate. Finally, we come to the secession crisis of 1860 to 1861. As the photograph of his cabinet makes clear, Buchanan was squarely in charge of the government. Called the old chief, much as Andrew Jackson had been called before him, Buchanan actually shared quite a bit in common with old Hickory. History has judged harshly Buchanan's handling of the secession crisis as compared to Jackson's handling of the nullification crisis of 1833. Neither secession nor nullification before it necessarily meant war, but any provocation upon the part of the federal government towards South Carolina surely would have set off bloody fighting, whether it was in 1833 or as it actually happened in 1861. During the secession crisis, like Jackson, Buchanan held to the constitutional principles, but unlike Jackson, he also declared that he was powerless to stop the southern states from seceding. In so doing, he earned the disappointment of both northern and southern members of his cabinet. Both Lewis Cass of Michigan, his Secretary of State, and Howell Cobb of Georgia, his Secretary of Treasury, resigned from office. Northern disappointment is widely known, but the southern cabinet officers were equally upset at Buchanan's inflexibility. To make matters worse, in January, Buchanan sent the Star of the West, a ship, to reinforce Charleston Harbor but it was rebuffed by Confederate forces before making landfall. In this way, Buchanan earned praise from the Northern members of his cabinet, including newly appointed Attorney General Joseph Holt and foreshadowed Lincoln's policies during the months of March and April, 1861. From this research, I came to think that Lincoln and not Buchanan 
proved the more inflexible of the pair in his response to the secession crisis. The two men are pictured here arm in arm during Lincoln's inauguration day. In Congress, John Crittenden of, of Kentucky proposed a major legislative compromise along the lines of those offered up by Henry Clay years earlier. Called the Crittenden Compromise, the overall effect was to extend the Missouri Compromise line across the Western territories, thus permitting slavery in New Mexico. To provide compensation for escaped slaves, and most importantly, to pass a constitutional amendment that protected the institution of slavery in those places where it already existed. Buchanan dutifully supported this compromise, but Lincoln and the Northern Republicans had already claimed that the Constitution precluded them from meddling with slavery in the South. In addition, Lincoln worried about making any compromise prior to assuming office. He correctly did not think it would end secession and thought also correctly it would serve to demoralize Union sympathizers. Thus, Buchanan's term ended with the appearance of his having failed to stop the secession movement. Of course, everything changed when the fighting began starting with the firing on Fort Sumter on April 12, 1861. An interesting hypothetical question remains about the secession crisis, and one that brings us full circle back to the bosom friendship of James Buchanan and William Rufus King. What would have happened had King lived beyond the year 1853? Undoubtedly, he would have counseled moderation in the Senate and might have even averted the repeal of the Missouri Compromise as part of the Kansas-Nebraska Act. The election of his old friend in 1856 equally would, would have pleased him. In fact, he may have stayed on as vice president. King would have approved of Buchanan's stance on the Lecompton Constitution and his hardline response to John Brown's raid in Harper's Ferry in 1859. But while King might not have counseled secession following the election of 1860, he certainly would have followed Alabama into the Confederacy. Indeed, his own nieces and nephews were ardent Confederates during the Civil War. Buchanan implicitly understood as much in an earlier remark that he was glad King had not lived to see the calamities of the Civil War. Like their shared political commitment to sustaining a union based on slavery, the Siamese twins of old would have been fatally separated. James Buchanan weathered the Civil War from his home in Wheatland, supporting Democratic candidates, but otherwise supporting the prosecution of the war by the Lincoln administration. Following his death in 1868, Buchanan's memory slowly receded from history. His niece, the indomitable Harriet Lane Johnson, pictured on the right, took charge of her uncle's papers and supported the publication of a two-volume set of his letters and speeches in the late 1880s and another more extensive 12-volume edition in the early 1900s. Such private efforts were vital to securing the historical legacy of U.S. presidents in the era before they received official library designation from the National Archives, the first of which began with Herbert Hoover. Here again, I benefited from another quirk of fate that had permitted historians to study our nation's 15th president. Let's circle back to the question that began my research those many years ago, namely the question of James Buchanan's sexuality. The more that I read, especially during the recent presidential election campaign season of 2020, in which both a lifelong bachelor, Cory Booker, and an openly gay man, Pete Buttigieg, ran for president, the more that I found that most people seem to consider Buchanan our nation's first gay president. The story of how that interpretation came about is actually quite an interesting one. The earliest biographers of James Buchanan writing in the Victorian era said very little about his sexuality, avoiding even the topic of his failed engagement to Anne Coleman. Later Buchanan biographers from the 1920s through the 1960s following the contemporary gossip in private letters, noted that the pair were, were referred to as the Siamese twins. 
More recently, an understanding of homosexuality as a sexual orientation began to take hold. As such, historians rediscovered the Buchanan-King relationship, and starting in the 1980s, some explicitly argued that it may have contained a sexual element. In the November 1987 issue of Penthouse Magazine, of all places, the New York gossip columnist Sharon Churcher noted the finding in an article headlined, quote, Our First Gay President Out of the Closet. Finally. The famous novelist and Pennsylvania native John Updike pushed back somewhat in his novel Memories of the Ford Administration from 1992. Updike creatively imagined the boarding house life of Buchanan and King, but he admitted to finding few traces of a homosexual passion, quote. Updike's conclusion had, had, has not stopped a veritable torrent of historical speculation in the years since. This leaves us today with the, with the popular conception of James Buchanan as our first gay president. On the one hand, it's not so bad a thing. Centuries of repression of homosexuality in the United States has erased countless numbers of Americans from the story of LGBTQ history and thus American history. The lack of a clearly identifiable LGBTQ political leaders from the past has produced a necessary rethinking of the historical record and has inspired historians to ask important new questions. In the process, past political leaders who for one reason or another don't fit into a normative pattern of heterosexual marriage have become almost reflexively queer. More than anything else, this impulse explains why Americans have transformed James Buchanan into our first gay president. Certainly, the quest for what historians call a usable queer past has done much good. Yet the specifics of this particular case actually obscure a more interesting and perhaps more significant historical truth. An intimate male friendship between two bachelor Democrats shaped the course of the party and, by extension, the nation in the decade before the U.S. Civil War. Worse still, moving Buchanan and King from intimate friends to sexual lovers blocks the path forward for a person today to assume the proper mantle of becoming our first gay president. Until that inevitable day comes to pass, these two bachelors from the antebellum past may be the next closest thing. By way of conclusion, let's return to these two images, the two full portraits of James Buchanan and William Rufus King that we began with. We see in them how Buchanan and King wanted the public and future generations to view them. In this positive light, they appear to be dignified statesmen at the start of their careers. But if we look beyond the formal pose to see how they have been seen by history, a far different picture comes into view. If anything, Buchanan and King, along with an entire generation of American politicians, are more commonly, most commonly remembered today for their views in slavery. This issue mattered dearly in their own times as well. Although he came from the North, Buchanan realized that the viability of the Democratic Party depended on the continuation of the South's slave-driven economy. From King, he learned the political value of allowing the peculiar institution to grow unchecked. From Buchanan, King learned that a commitment to party and union yielded large political rewards. Both men equally detested abolitionists, whom they labeled as fanatics. Critics may have labeled King as Aunt Nancy and Buchanan as a doe-face, but the two men pressed onwards, quietly building support across the country in the hopes of one day rising to higher office. In this, they succeeded. Elected vice president in 1852, the nation mourned the death of William Rufus King one year later, eulogizing him as among the last of a generation of older statesmen committed to union. 
Elected president in 1856, Buchanan was lauded as a staunch conservative and a savior of the Union. As president, he upheld the Constitution as he saw it, protecting Southern rights to their slaves and critically unwilling to quash Southern secession during the winter of 1860-1861. For his actions, his presidency has been labeled as weak and pro-Southern. But in truth, Buchanan had long since before become a sympathizer and then a collaborator with the South. What began as a bosom friendship in a Washington boarding house ended with a man whose lofty ambitions carried him all the way to the White House. Just as William Rufus King had advised him in his final letter, Buchanan had become a Northern man with Southern principles. For his course, a largely pro-slavery nation gave him his just award, reward, the presidency. My lecture today suggests that Buchanan and King should be remembered for sharing an intimate male friendship that shaped the course of national politics and not for being gay lovers. They did have one love in common though. Each man wanted nothing more than to unite the North and the South through the institution of their beloved Democratic Party. That their friendship meant the enslavement of millions of African Americans should not be and has not been forgotten. Of course, they were not alone in thinking this way. If we are to understand the longer history of how this inhumane system of bondage laid the foundation for political success for a generation of politicians, we must also study how men from different parts of the country managed to work together to achieve their political ends. In the end, intimate male friendship could be as beneficial for the individuals involved as it was oppressive for those excluded from its warm embrace. It was a subject of gossip and emotional expression. It was and is a durable construct. Bosom friendship did not go away after Buchanan and King. In fact, politicians continue to rely on it to advance politically, both for good and for ill, unto this day. As with all the history that we study, I think it's important an important lesson to consider it in our own moment. Okay, with that, I thank you for your attention and I welcome any questions that you might have. All right, I see one from Stacy. Based on your research indicating the intimacy between Buchanan and King was rather one-sided, do you think Buchanan was using his friendship with King for political gain rather than true intimacy? Why or why not? It's a great question. I like to divide the friendship into two different periods. The period where they were living together in a Washington boarding house during their time in the U.S. Senate and the period after their separation in which both men achieved their higher office. So for me, he, Buchanan, was using King more. It was more of an instrumental friendship in this second period after they were separated. And I think the intimacy of living together, the shared experience of living in the same domestic arrangement, that was truly, that was real, that was personal, and, and, and it, it meant something. But Buchanan was so quick to move on from King. And I think he was so politically motivated and so... Um, interested in, in achieving the presidency that he did whatever it took. And that meant essentially moving on from William Rufus King, even until his dying day. Okay. Uh, is there another question? I see a question um, from Corinne. We'll go to her next. Uh, Professor, you had mentioned in your lecture that um, his niece, Buchanan's niece had uh, gathered a lot of his papers and letters, but it's my understanding that he also destroyed a lot of letters mm. as well. So my question is, how common was it at this time in history for someone to destroy correspondence, 
at the time of their death? And is that in any way used um, by advocates of a gay Buchanan? Hmm. Oh, it's a really good question. And it's something I actually did address in my research. And I came to realize that while destroying correspondence was fairly common in the 19th century, in the case of Buchanan and King, we don't have a record of their nieces or anyone related to them destroying correspondence. In fact, we have in their correspondence moments where Buchanan or King requests one or the other to destroy a letter, and yet the letter survives. So it goes to suggest that it was a common practice for political reasons. And if anything, the letters that King requested Buchanan to destroy, which he did not, show that it was because of the sensitive political matter contained within the letter, not an intimate matter. So I do think that Buchanan generally kept everything from King. I don't think Buchanan destroyed any of the letters. Now, the problem is we don't have any of Buchanan's letters to King, or very few of them, I should say. And so that has led to this idea that certainly those letters were destroyed later by nieces because of the content they contained. Here again, I don't think so. I provide some reasons for why that is in my book, but I'll simply say that um, William Rufus King's plantation Chestnut Hill in Selma was raided during the Civil War, and it's very likely that much of his personal papers were destroyed during this raid or in other subsequent floods of the Selma River. Because again, the records of William Rufus King, the papers overall, are actually fairly slim at the Alabama Department of Archives and History as compared to Buchanan's papers at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. So while it has been used as a way to try to say, well, this, this is hiding some sign of gay relationship, I, I think actually the evidence suggests the other way. It's a good question. Thank you. Okay, I see another hand up here from Luke. Let me pull him up here. Hi, Dr. Brosowski. Hi. Um, I'm wondering what Buchanan's bachelor status meant for him as he navigated kind of the intricacies of the Washington socialites. And from there, um, what was the importance of him like flirting his way through Washington? That's a great question because we have to first start with the assumption that Buchanan was sincere in all he did. Uh, on the one hand, he did, in fact, court Ann Coleman. He was engaged to her, and the engagement was broken. And then what I started to look for were, were there any other women in his life that he had as serious an engagement towards as Ann Coleman? And the answer is no. So on the one hand, flirtation then became a way for him to sort of play the field without having to commit to marriage. Now, I think he was more serious about marriage actually as a younger man, and we find evidence of that in the 1830s, but again, it never led anywhere. By the 1840s and the 1850s, he's in his 50s and into his 60s, I think he's using flirtation almost as a way to fit within the social circles of Washington life, to almost placate these powerful interests, whether it be Sarah Polk, Dolly Madison, or others within his White House. So I think it was instrumental in the same way that he used male friendship, quite frankly, that he used these flirtatious relationships with women as a kind of way to uh, paint him in the best possible light. But we also have to, to work under the assumption that he, he was serious about uh, these relationships, that he understood they had, that they weren't just for show, that they had some component uh, of substance to them. And we, we read the evidence that survives that shows that observers saw him as being quite interested through his presidency in various younger, typically Southern widows. Okay, I think we have time for more questions. I see one from Alan. Let me get him up. 
Alan, go ahead. Okay, so my question was, did anyone replace Kane as Buchanan's close male friend uh, during the presidential years or afterwards? Yeah, it's a great question. If you look back to that picture of his cabinet, we see some likely suspects. And indeed, Howell Cobb of Georgia was in many ways the replacement of William Rufus King during the cabinet. Howell Cobb actually lived apart from his wife, Marianne, for much of the time that he was Washington. So he and Buchanan established something of a bachelor's quarters together. And indeed, indeed, Howell Cobb lived with Buchanan in the White House for a period of time. He also kept his own residence in Washington where Buchanan would, would spend time. And indeed, commentators pointed out that this was a particularly intimate male friendship. Now, I think the difference between a William Rufus King and a Howell Cobb was they were not equals. William Rufus King and James Buchanan were both in the Senate. They lived in the same boarding house. They were on the same political standing. Howell Cobb as Secretary of Treasury is clearly the subordinate of President James Buchanan. And there was always this unequal power relationship, which, which, which again differs from King. So rather than a bosom friendship of the kind that he had with King, the relationship with, Buchan with Howell Cobb was certainly an intimate male friendship, but it didn't have the same level of equality. And I think this explains partly Howell Cobb's lack of loyalty and, and commitment to to Buchanan as his presidency unraveled during the secession crisis? Good question. Okay, and I think I see a hand as well from uh, Jackson earlier. Uh, yes, the hand is up. So Jackson, do you wanna ask your question? Yeah, hi, Professor. Um, I'm interested a little, a little bit in the actual writing process for your book, and I, I know you spent several years on it. You traveled all across the country researching it, and about how many drafts did you go through before you were satisfied with the writing? And uh, as you got published and you had an editor, what kind of like peer reviews was your work subjected to before it was released for a wider audience? Oh, that's an excellent question, and again, one of relevance to Students of History 200 this semester. Uh, I worked on multiple drafts. I think at the end of the day, I was up to seven full drafts of the manuscript on my own, and then it also went through peer review, and it went through copy editing. Uh, so in the process, the book benefited immensely from sharing with audiences at conferences, with sharing with my editor, and sharing with peer review. It's an important lesson for all of us to remember is that we do better as writers and historians when we get to share ideas. And it's for this reason that in our coursework here at Eastern, we promote this kind of collaboration across, across the classroom. So that's one thing I'll say. Uh, but about the publication process itself, it's been really rewarding to me to be able to hear from, from readers and those who have read it. And they've actually helped me to understand my topic even richer. So even after we publish books, even after we write what we do, we still learn and we continue to grow in our scholarship. And it helps us to lead on to future projects. Thank you. Okay. Looks like we've uh, worked through all the questions, so I appreciate your attention today. Now, as a reminder for next week's class, you're to read chapter 14 of the workbook on the topic of historiography and come to class prepared to discuss it. So we'll see you in person next time. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. Thank you.